Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. This is where you can get answers to your coaching questions. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and I'm here with Coach Chad Timmerman. Hey, everybody. And our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And as I said, this is where we answer some of the questions that you guys submit. Um, you can submit those to us at support at trainerroad.com, and we will go through and get as many of them as we can to answer every week or whenever we get to do these podcasts here. You can find this podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or Stitcher, or anywhere else where you find those, uh, or listen to your podcasts, and you can leave us reviews there. We'd love that. We'll kick things off today uh, with a question from Sean, and uh, let's go. Sean says, thanks so much for the wonderful podcast. You guys rock. Five stars. My question, setting aside what we all know about using, using heart rate as a training metric, I'm curious uh, as to your thoughts. I did a little experiment using different heart rate monitors versus my Vector 2s, which are calibrated correctly or accurately tested with three other power meters. So he's talking about his Garmin Vectors, and those are the most recent version of them. On each of my training sessions, my different heart rate monitor kilocalories were 20% higher than the kilocalories reported from my Vectors. While the wattage, while the wattage generated um, caloric burn is the accurate measurement, why would three different heart rate monitors report calorie burn 20% higher for the same workout? Is it just the algorithm used on HRMs? Yeah. Do you want me to take this one, Chad? Yep. Have at it. Great. So uh, for those who don't know, Garmin vectors are pedal-based power meters. And I, I've gotten many debate on forums about this with heart rate monitor, calorie burn versus um, actual power meter. So for those who don't know, if you're actually measuring your power output, you're the kilojoules that you have has a pretty much a one-to-one -one relationship to calories burned. And that has to do with uh, your efficiency. I, I know there's there's like 4.1 uh, kilocalories in a kilojoule. Wait, is it my, am I doing that backwards? Basically, you can look up the math. And, and if you Google it, I've done a blog post about this. But it, it ends up, if you estimate your efficiency right in the middle of what a human is uh, normally, it's about a one-to-one. -one. So if you look at your kilo, kilojoules for a workout, that's what your calories burned are now heart rate heart rate totally different and it's everyone has their own kind of algorithm with it so that that's a, you're right about that is that different heart rate manufacturers and really just it's not really the heart rate monitor strap is doing it it's the software that's analyzing it uh we were just talking the other day you might get on an elliptical my wife will get on the elliptical and she'll go for like an hour and it's like you burned a thousand calories like <laughs> no you did not burn a thousand calories but uh it's in there I believe it's in their best interest to kind of overestimate it. Uh, if anyone debates, goes, no, heart rate is extremely accurate for calorie burn. Let's, a good example is between Chad and I. So uh, right now, my FTP is 250. Chad, your FTP? 345. 345. Okay, so let's say it's a 100-watt difference. I can peg a workout at a much higher heart rate. Like, I can hold 180 for an hour, easy. And not easy, but I mean, it's that was probably you know, sweet spot for, for an hour. Chad, what's your sweet spot for an hour? Like 150. 150. Okay. So Chad has gone for 150, let's say, but he's been putting out 340 watts and I put out 240 watts. He obviously did burn more calories because he's actually working more. And that's a cool thing too, that for those who don't know, as you get stronger, you're going to burn more calories an hour and, and lose more weight. Um, so in that situation, if we looked at heart rate, it would say that I burned more calories than Chad, right? But I obviously didn't like we can measure this. It's yeah. it's a fact that I didn't. And it would probably say that I burned a ton more than Chad. And 
I, I, you know, I could be happy and eat an extra pizza, but I would just get fatter, <laughs> even fatter than I am. Um, and this is an interesting, it. yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's a great explanation there. Um, and he says, a he has a side note and has another question here. And this is interesting. Um, so I think that we can provide some insight here. He says, you guys recently did a 180 on training early morning in a fasted state. Now saying you were doing training later in the day for better performance. So does the adaptation from stronger training performance in afternoon trump the adaptation from fasted morning training? Yeah, this is, um, I'm glad you brought this up, Sean, because it's something I wanted to clarify. Um, we didn't exactly do a 180. This is not about changing our minds so much as uh, personally changing my priorities. So earlier in the year, my focus was more on fat loss. So I would enter into my rides in a depleted state with the intention of burning uh, more fat. Uh but now I'm more concerned with keeping the quality of my workouts high. So some of those early morning workouts toward the end of them, I would be running out of gas. And, and it's definitely arguable that the last couple of intervals weren't as productive as they could be if I had gone in topped off on glycogen. But it wasn't as big a concern because I was more focused on weight loss. Now I want those last intervals to be meaningful. So I do my workouts in a more topped off state. And then I can address the nutrition in, in different ways on different days. But in terms of quality... Uh, I, I want to be glycogen replete heading into these more uh, challenging rides. And I, I think we said this before, but another way that you could do it, so I'm in sweet spot basement volume two, which is three intervals and three more endurance rides. Endurance rides, I could do more in a glycogen depleted state in the morning. Exactly. And then the endurance mm-hmm. rides at lunch when I've kind of, I've had some food throughout the day and really make sure that the interval workouts I nail completely and the endurance rides, I burn a little bit more fat. That's exactly right. And then we've also got, uh, so, so now we're seeing buzz and it was even in Velo News this, this month about training low and, and racing high. And, and that could be carried to even the evening workouts, wherein you do your, like in my case right now, I'm saving well, my Wait high. a second, Chad. You're, you're not talking about elevation now, right? You're yeah, no, about- no. I'm talking about uh, glycogen, basically. So sugar. Yeah. Um, so, so when I hit my hard workouts in the afternoon, I go into them, you know, f- fully loaded up on glycogen so that I can have a and that solid- would be- Sorry, that would be training high? Yeah, yeah. So, so right now I'm okay. training high. So plenty of glycogen stores. Sugar is not the concern. I'm not going to run out inside of the 60 or 90 minutes. But then afterwards, postponing my carbohydrate intake in, in the case of you know what they're recommending and what I've actually tried in the past, postponing it till the next day. So I'll have like a protein and maybe a little bit of uh, you know salad or something for dinner. So a little bit of, uh, of, of uh, high, higher fiber carbohydrates. Um, but basically avoiding... Uh, glycogen replenishment until the next day that idea being to metabolize more fat the carbohydrates not there when well, my body's got to run on something so we're going to imp- improve fat metabolism and, and ideally shed a little bit of body fat in the process this is the cool thing about having power meters is we can actually test and trial and and experiment with these different things and then power meters are such an objective measurement of work that we can generally get a good indication of how they're affecting us on the bike. So a lot of the stuff when you hear us talking about these different things, that these are all different tools that you can have in your toolbox. And when you need to use that tool, it's there for you type of a thing. And that's what we do. Um, training, if you're doing the same thing constantly throughout the year, you're probably not going to get much faster. So, and this is, if I can add this, this is a finer point, but when it comes to uh, translating kilojoules directly to kilocalories, I always see that as a, the lowest possible estimate in that it's measuring the work that's happening, you know, at the wheel or, or wherever that the power meter is measuring, but it, there's at least that much work making it to the wheel. What happens when you get out of the saddle or when you overspin or when you do things where it maybe costs you a little bit of efficiency, you may be putting out that same amount of power, 
but you're actually burning a little more calories because you're, you're recruiting more muscle, maybe riding sloppily, maybe just getting out of the saddle, using more of your legs, etc. So that would be the low end of things. You might actually burn marginally more. Good point, Chad. And another question here uh, from Sean. He said, great input on the podcast about handling the day before a race. While I understand everyone is different and there is a good amount of trial and error, I have a question about handling the week leading into my A race this season. And he says this is A plus race, so it's the big one. I will be timing this perfectly and will be finishing a specialty plan. I'm 45, and over the last few years, while I'm just as fit as I was 5 to 10 years ago, if not more, it now takes me twice as long to recover from workouts. This is based on resting heart rate experience, tons of analysis on training performance after last workout, etc. So with my A, it's an ultra endurance race on a Sunday, how do you think I should handle the week? How much rest days should I take? Obviously, it would be beneficial to do something on Saturday based on your input that you guys have mentioned on the podcast. And how would you suggest I work in a pre-race massage midweek or the day before? So... Okay, so, I guess tackle the first one. There, so Chad. first off, like in, in a in a general sense, um, the duration of your event is going to factor into how long your taper is, and your training load leading into it is going to factor into it as well. I mean, for for like a low low volume athlete who's just doing three days of intervals a week, um, they're not going to need a two week taper going into a, an Olympic distance triathlon. But someone training six days a week, maybe two, sometimes three days a week really heavy training load and they're, they're, they're tapering for a big, in your case, uh, ultra endurance event, it's probably going to need a longer taper. Um, how your age factors into this, um, is something that's, that's really subjective. So you have to figure, you know, how much, how much of a reduction in stress and overall stress, you know, keeping the intensity, but trimming some of the volume, um, keeps you sharp. You know, your fitness at some point is going to start to fall. Your fatigue is falling uh, as well. So the idea is to do enough stress that, that your fitness is just starting to fall come race day or maybe even just past race day and your fatigue is at its lowest point. So it's, it's highly subjective and it sounds like you're paying close attention to, to what works for you and what doesn't. So I, I'm sorry, I can't be more specific than that. Maybe you guys have something to add. Um, well, I have a, I have a more general point before I get into his question, but for tapering, Chad, you hit the nail on the head about how much work you're doing into it. My sister is getting into triathlons right now, and someone in her tri group in DC goes, "You don't, you don't ever, um, you don't ever taper for sprint or Olympic. You only ta- taper for, or you don't taper for a half marathon either. You, you only taper for marathons and like Ironmans." And I was like, "She told me this," and I was like, mm-hmm. "No, no, it, it's all depending on if you're if you're running fifty miles a week for your mm-hmm. half, uh, you're gonna need to taper, or if you're training like you know ten. 12 hours a week, uh, you're going to taper even, even seven hours. Like, so that could be six bike workouts a week. If you're doing a, a road race, it's all depends on the stress leading up to it. If you're, you know, you're not, if you're not working out a ton, then don't do that. So basically what I think, even if it's an ultra endurance event, especially if you have a whole bunch of volume and, and Chad, I don't know as much about taper. So maybe you can tell me if I'm full of malarkey here, um, mm-hmm. is that, Race week, short, hard intervals, especially if you've had a lot of, um, you've been doing a lot of mileage and stuff. So switch it up, do a couple, maybe early in the week, do a VO2 max up, but like maybe 120% for only a minute with some good rest between it to kind of open it up. And then on Thursday, I would actually do um, maybe even some anaerobic. I've really had good response with really short anaerobic kind of opening myself up. Um, And the other thing about massage is I personally feel like I 
ride worse right after a massage. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Me do too. you guys feel the same way? Yeah, I, I, same way? me too. I can't think of an instance where I would recommend a massage prior to an event. That's always a post uh, a, a yeah. post event sort of affair. Yeah. So the the intent, at least for me, with massage is to just aid in in flushing my legs a bit after an event. It's not. Uh, relaxing my muscles beforehand or doing anything else like that it generally just just puts me further behind um so yeah it's always a post workout or post race thing for me so and i, and the, I, also, I try to limit those too by the way like i i, I see expensive. some people get massages pretty regularly they're expensive but then on top of that too i i uh yeah i just i i, I foam roll and stretch and do everything else i need to after i i work out but and and after i race but as far as going in and getting a massage or anything else like that, I try to limit those. So, so going back to his taper, he's got so he's got those two days of kind of openers. I may I probably do a short or opener to the the day before the race, mm-hmm. and then depending on how much uh, stress you're coming in. So if you're if you're training six days a week and you have a lot of volume on those other days, I would probably do just thirty minutes easy spin on the trainer. Um, you know, we have a lot of those, or you could take something like petite and cut it in half and just do 30 minutes on the other days. What what do you think, Chad? Yeah. Everything you said is, is just fine. So again, it's relative to how much fatigue you're carrying into this, how much you need to shed uh, in the process of, you know, your, your three week, two week, one week taper leading into it. So, um, all of these recommendations are solid. Just ideally, you know, you roll around to race day, um, and, and you feel ready to, to rip it. You feel quite good. Um, and the one thing I, or perhaps not the most important thing, but something that's proven key for me and plenty of the riders I've coached is, is that day prior. I mean, there, there's, there's obviously a neuromuscular effect. I mean, r- r- keeping your muscles sharp, letting them, you know, keeping those communication lines open wide, but there's also a psychological aspect where you just never get too far away from, from how hard you have to work and what it feels like to, to work. And the other, um, things to remember are, excuse me, what I've seen, what I've experienced and what I've heard about is, um, one on taper week. It's okay if those really easy workouts feel kind of hard because you have a whole bunch of stress mm-hmm. coming in. And two, I've felt sick so many times on taper week. Mm-hmm. And I've heard this mm-hmm. is because you you might have been uh, suppressing your immune system. And I don't know if this is true or not. So take it with a grain of salt. And then you, you kind of feel like, you know, you get a little bit of a sore throat and you feel horrible and it's easy to freak out. I Before my first marathon, I felt that way. Before my first Ironman. Uh, mm-hmm. what do you, have you guys heard I about never- that or experienced it? Yeah, I never feel good in a taper week. Um, it's mm-hmm. after a taper week where I yield it the benefits. It scares you, right? Yep. Yeah, and it does. And, and you just have to trust in the fact that if you're following the structured plan laid in front of you, as long as it's a good plan, then then you don't have to you don't have to doubt. As long as you've been doing your homework, you know. Um, at least that's what I take confidence in. Because yeah, like you said, it's really common in um, getting sick or just feeling slow. And especially because in a lot of cases, you're going to be doing these openers and. They, they're pretty intense and they can be taxing, but don't worry about it. You're doing the right stuff. Yeah, it's it's worrisome, work. but it all it comes with experience too. The more often you do it, the more you see. You know, I often feel pretty crappy on taper weeks, but race day rolls around and I'm I'm feeling good. And I will say there doesn't appear to be a real rhyme or reason to it. I've I've had some of my best performances starting off just feeling terrible. Day prior I felt terrible. My legs were just limp and just couldn't generate any power. And then I've had days where I feel just awesome the day before race. And then the next day, I, I don't know if I built myself up too much or, or I was, I'm coming off of a peak exactly. I don't know, but th- there's not always a real strong correlation between how I feel the day prior or even the week prior and then the event. That goes back to just a, a larger mental issue. Chad, I just talked to you last week 
and I had a workout and I was going to mm. do it and I was scared. I'm like, Chad, my weeks have been, or my, my weeks, my legs have been sore for a week and a half because I, I, I raised my volume and I'm like, I don't think I can do this workout. Should I turn it down? Should I just replace it? And we talked for a while and in the end, what we decided is, well, why don't you just try it? And then if you need to, you can, you can back down uh, one of the, the, the other, the other intervals. Cause maybe you can do it. And I did the whole thing and mm-hmm. I didn't think I could. And after the first interval, I didn't think I could do the second one. And I did that. And I think I do the third one. I could do that. And I didn't think I do the fourth one. And now next and time, next time you come across a hard workout or a person out on the road that's beating gonna, you, Oh, you will. I'm not going to think that. that, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I can do this. Uh, yep. <laughs> I shouldn't doubt myself so much. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just in that, like that Rossi video. Uh, cycling is incredibly mental, incredibly mental. Yeah, endurance sports in general. This is where a structured plan comes into play so much for me because oh, yeah. you have to listen to your body, right? I mean, you have to. You have to understand what your body's doing, but you also have to know what your body is capable of. And if you lay something out by the numbers that's set out for you and you know that if you follow it, you'll be all right, then that is so helpful sometimes because sometimes we do feel bad and our body is telling us no, but the fact is you've done something that's tougher than this and you can do it right now. It's just a tough day. And sometimes I- it's pushing through those tough days when you know you can do better rather than pushing too hard on a day when you know you shouldn't be going too hard. That's, that's the key. You know, if I didn't have that, the, that plan, I would have skipped that day mm-hmm. and I probably wouldn't have worked out for another day. And then I would have done something. And, and then other days, wouldn't... other days when you yeah. would have felt really good, really good, you probably would have pushed yourself too hard. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's all about consistency. Structure. Yep. Okay, Jens has a question. I hope it's Jens. Um, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, forgive me. He says, Hi, Trainer Road. Great podcast and greetings from Denmark. I'm pretty new to cycling. He started in the spring of 2014 at a hefty 107 kilograms. Uh, so that's about 235 pounds for those of us stateside here. Um, since then, the weight has gone, or has gone down at a steady pace, but I set out to really lose some weight here in the autumn of 2015, so I've lost another 7 kilograms since September 2015 due to cutting back on food in addition to running and cycling indoors. But now I feel stuck at 89 kilograms and being 190 centimeters, so I could still lose a few kilograms. So my question is, what power level is, is most effective to burn fat? Sweet spot level or threshold level? I usually ride two times for one hour a piece on Monday to Friday, two to three hour rides in the weekend, if snow allows it. Best regards, the recreational cyclist, Jens. Hey, Jens, so there's, there's not really a particular, you know, optimal uh, fat burning level. I mean, there, there are levels of effort where you're metabolizing more fat than sugar. And, and, that, and that idea has been spun way out of, way out of context. And, and, and people get the idea that if they work too hard, they're not burning fat anymore. And that's just just plain wrong. So the concern really boils down to how much time you have to devote to training. If you've only got three, five hours a week and you spend that riding at 60%, you're not going to see that much fat loss. Sure. Most of the energy you burn is going to be fat and that's all good and fine, but your, your caloric deficit isn't going to be as, as vast as it would be if you did something like sweet spot or threshold. So, um, you can, you know, obviously you have to watch your, your balance, how many calories you take in, how many you burn and keep that mildly negative or greatly negative, depending on, you know, how motivated you are and, and, uh, you know, just what you can get away with and, and stay healthy, <clears throat> excuse me, healthy. But, um, for most of us who, who don't have the time to train like professional riders who do four five, six hour days, um, it, it really comes down to in, uh, intensity. So training, uh, you know, two to three hours, 
two times a week, an hour piece. And then and those right there are, are going to be sweet spot and above. I mean, that's just the, the performance benefit that comes with it, the, the weight loss benefit that can come with it, assuming you don't uh, dose your, your system with carbohydrates and, and deny the whole f- fat metabolizing effect. Um, that that's the one half of it. And then you've got the two to three hour ride on the weekend, um, which for, for longer rides, obviously the, t- the intensity isn't going to be that high. So at that time, that's when you can, you know, keep the intensity down and know that you're burning more fat and you're doing it for a longer period of time, which is going to accumulate, you know, a greater caloric expenditure, ideally relative to your, your caloric intake. Yeah. So this is a, this is a majorly like misunderstood thing in, in, in working out. So there is, if at lower intensities, you, you burn a higher percentage of fat, right? Out of, out but, of the stuff that you're burning, right? That's, that's yeah, exactly. But about. you're burning less mm-hmm. overall calories. Yes. So at a higher, uh, at a higher intensity, you're, you're burning less fat, but you're also burning a higher percentage of, um, a higher total burning, number of calories. Yes. Plus after your workout. Especially, uh, you, you know, you're, you're building muscle at those more intense ones and every pound of muscle is about, uh, you, it's about 50 more calories a day that your body's just naturally going to burn to maintain that. And then, um, on top of that, it's going to burn as you repair it, your body too, it's going to burn more calories. So I think if, if her bodies could take it, Chad would be like for weight loss, he'd be like two and a half hours of intervals every single day, <laughs> but we just can't take it. So what he usually recommends is three hours of intervals and then those TSS fillers per week, which are per week. Yes. And then those, those other kind of longer rides that fill in TSS of those ones, we know they're not going to burn as many calories unless you're going longer, right? So a three hour ride is going to burn, even if you're at a lower intensity is going to burn usually more calories than an hour ride. I, I find that my like 90 minute interval rides will still burn more calories than a two hour ride. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But then, um, after that, uh, what we just talked about before is so on those TSS or those TSS fillers, those kind of easier rides to maximize that. We'll also do that in a, um, a fasted state in the morning. Yes. And so that, that, so that when we do burn those ones and they're, it kind of ups the efficiency of fat burning for those ones. Is that a good way to put it, Chad? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, there, there's also, so a lot of this comes down to, um, it's a split between, you know, the workload and the, the nutrients or the nutrient timing. And I think a lot of people just regardless of uh, maybe the intensity or the duration of the workout, just think they have to have that carbo drink and they either have it prior to or during or immediately after, cause they're trying to make that quote unquote glycogen window. There, there are a lot of mixed signals you send your body when you're trying to get it to metabolize fat, but you continue to dose your system with sugar. Um, the, the, the two don't play well together. So uh, with, with things like, uh, even high intensity rides, denying yourself glycogen afterwards can have a, a, a positive fat met- met- metabolic effect. Um, going into them in a depleted state can have an effect doing longer rides on minimal carbohydrate intake can have a positive impact on fat metabolism. So there's actually kind of a, a lot of work here. It's not just about the work you're doing. It's also about what you're eating and when you're eating it. So the times that I would do a, um, uh, like a recovery shake or something, something high sugar right after a workout would be the day before a race or back to back races. So in the, I know, uh, the crit podcast, John, that was awesome. If you haven't listened to the crit podcast, it's get episode into it. 21. You can find Yeah. About there. halfway. I don't, I'm not sure how far through, but I love the tactical part. I want to race crits now. Uh, <laughs> it's all, it's like half mental, crits which is fun. so cool to me. 
Mm-hmm. The um, but he t- um, Pete talked about uh, you know, if he'll do back to back crits and and needing that in, and also the last guy we talked to about the uh, taper, mm-hmm. who was that? That was uh, Sean. Yeah. Is that if you're gonna do that opener before race day and you have a race the next day, I would do the you know try to get the simple sugars in, get as much glycogen Absolutely. as you can in your muscles. Yeah, but th- on, there's but no upside to going into a race starved. Yes, exactly right. I made that mistake at Sea Otter last year, and I remember I told Chad about it, and you looked at me like I was a complete idiot, (laughs) and I deserved it, to be honest. He knows better. (laughs) Yeah. And if your weight's good, like, uh, a shake is not going to kill you after mm -hmm. each, right? It's not. After each ride. Yeah, there there are ways to to minimize. I know a lot of people are concerned with doing a hard workout, and then then the uh, protein breakdown that happens, the muscle wasting that, that can happen. Um, and, and you can mitigate that in, in ways that still lend to fat metabolizing, you know, have a, a hard boiled egg or a, a protein. I, I don't really advocate the use of supplements. I'm not real big, big on them, but you, there are, you know, just a, just a small dose of protein can not only create a bit of satiation and make you a little less conscious of how hungry you are, but also kind of, you know, mitigate some of that, that muscle loss that you could experience. Chris is our next uh, guy who has some questions here, and they follow the same vein, um, along weight loss, really. Um, so, so Chris, we'll go through these. We'll, we'll, we'll answer some of these, and if, uh, if we've gotten to the point where we've already overlapped, we'll try not to be redundant here. So, um, But before we get into that, he actually said something that Chad and I talked about this morning that we feel is a really cool little point. Um, so he says, I love Trainer Road and improved my FTP from 265 to 319, thanks to Trainer Road. It's nice. awesome stuff. That's really good. Actually, I'm such a big fan that I purchased my wife her first road bike to be used with Trainer Road as well. And then he said she never had a bike with gears before, gears before, and she hasn't been on a bike for over 20 years. And we're talking about the trainer and how awesome it is for helping people learn shifting. Because, I mean, I we were talking. I think SRAM's one by eleven drivetrain is probably one of the best innovations we've had in cycling. Not because it makes it more simple, not because the chains don't drop, not because of anything else, but it just makes shifting simple for people because it gets super complex and you're on a trail and you're in rocks or you're in traffic and you're trying to shift gears and you get sketched Especially out. Especially a three by. Uh, yeah, right. That's exactly what I was just going to say. I mean, we take it for granted because we've been doing this for you know, decades in some cases, but multiple years for sure. And people who are new to this and you give them, you know, three rings up front and, and 10 or 11 cogs <laughs> in back. That's, that's a, a nightmare. And the shifters do opposite things and it's just, it gets super yeah. confusing. And you can't cross chain. <laughs> no. Right. No. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you have to figure all this out. Well, you know, if you're riding outside, you're contending with everything that comes with outdoor riding. Yeah. So that's another perk of indoor training. If you get uh, your kids or anything else, I know a good friend of mine uh, here locally, He, his little son, Charlie, is an absolute machine on a bike. He's already beating kids that are teenagers and he's like eight. Um, but he, he rides the rollers and trainers with his dad <laughs> and he always has. And that's where he learned how to shift. So I, it's funny. I saw Charlie at in, uh, indoor power. So that's where I, I met Chad to, to build trainer road. And Charlie was there as an infant on yeah. the ground as his dad was riding. So it's, it's in his DNA and it's in his blood. He's so good guys. He's going to be incredible. Um, he's really good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, anyways, we just, we just thought that we'd point that out. We, I know my wife has, um, found it hugely beneficial to learn really more about the particulars of bike handling and shifting and everything else sounds strange, but on a trainer, it's helped her get in the right position and shift and everything else. So it could be a good tactic for you guys to use. So 
Um, let's go through Chris's scenario here and then we'll go through the questions. Um, he says, I'm still a heavier rider with 216 pounds. Uh, he races in the Clydesdale category. I'm now focusing on losing my, uh, losing some pounds conservatively, one to two pounds per week using a calorie counter app. And he's going to use my fitness pal, my fitness pal. That's a good idea. By the way, those things really do help. Um, my goal would be to lose between 20 and 25 pounds. At the same time, I'd like to continue to work on my FTP, which means only slightly changes on my F or slight increases on my FTP while I would be um, improving my watt per kilogram ratio. So, uh, of course, an increase in FTP would be even better, but I want to be realistic. I completed your sweet spot based low volume training plan, and I'm currently following the general build training plan. My first workout with a new tested FTP after starting my diet, and he has diet in quotes, was a disaster. For the first time, I could not complete the workout. Even after adjusting the intensity, I noticed my heart rate did not increase over 180 while being, uh, while before I reached 190 uh, for your heart rate during hard intervals. After throwing up three times, I stopped the workout. Oh. Sheesh. <laughs> that is rough. That's, that's rough, that's Chris. That's dedication right there. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't give up after the first two times. Um, so, uh first things first chat i kind of want to touch on that mm-hmm. it almost sounds like he might be might have been fatigued yeah he's I just mean, tired anytime you, know? you can't elevate heart rate that's not usually uh, doesn't necessarily have to do with glycogen depletion or, or diet modification chances are you're just a little tired yeah and like we just talked about those bad days when you have them mm-hmm. and good days sometimes they come around man you have to deal with them deal with them responsibly so um his first question: Should should or can I start over with a traditional base plan from the from general build, as I believe it is more suited towards a weight loss goal? So we just talked about that the the low intensity longer rides versus the high intensity shorter rides and what effect that has on weight loss. He says I have no specific event I'm training for, and a change would not be a big problem for me. Chad, what would you suggest here? With yeah, if plans? weight loss is the goal, and you can put in a fair amount of time on the bike, then maybe restarting a traditional base program isn't isn't a bad thing, especially considering you don't have any any goals rolling around. Um, it, that that assumes uh, I, I kind of th- it's tough to decide where the cutoff is. You know, where uh, low volume becomes high volume, etc. But honestly, I think if you can't devote a solid eight hours a week, uh, ideally more like 10, I think you're still better off going the sweet spot sweet spot route, even when it comes to weight loss. Agreed. Number two, how should I manage my calorie intake, assuming I want to stay below my daily, daily calorie goal to lose some weight in the following scenarios? Scenario A, if I ride or work out in the early morning after some basic breakfast, and he gives yogurt as an example, or B, if I ride or work out in the evening after a day at work. So how would his caloric intake adjust based yeah, on working in the morning? Honestly, uh, early morning workouts, I'm not sure you need anything before them, especially if you're going to go low intensity, but even if you're going to go moderate intensity like sweet spot. Um, so uh, if you need something to settle your stomach, that's one thing. Um, if you're using those, if you're, if you're concerned with, with fat burning, then I, I would go into them in a, in a starved or, or depleted state if possible. I've Okay, I've got it for you. This is what you do. You do sweet spot base mid-volume, okay? And then you do your early morning rides, like the TSS endurance fillers, fasted state. You do your evening workouts after work, your high-intensity ones. Um, you do those, and you eat nothing. You mm-hmm. sleep. That, that means you're, you're sleeping low. So you, you, you trained with, you know, you have stuff in it, and then you've depleted it. You have some tea or something like that. Afterwards, you go to bed. And then those would be, based on current research, like the maximum bang for your buck for weight loss right there. Yes. Plus yes. your performance would increase. And what we we didn't touch on last question, but remember as you build more muscle in your legs and you get stronger, 
you're going to burn so many more calories. So in the amount of time, so increasing your FTP will lead to weight loss. Like I look at Chad's workouts at three, what'd you say? 350 or whatever hmm. he burns. And I'm at 250. He's burning 30% more calories for the same, you know, uh, amount of work. Uh, so what do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I think I just yeah, give him the perfect Nate, idea. Nate just perfect. cut to the chase. That's exactly where I was going with that. I would save the the lower so intensity stuff. <laughs> That's fine. The lower intensity, lower intensity stuff early in in the glycogen depleted state. Then do your high intensity when you know you've got some sugar in your in your muscles, and then follow it with little or nothing. You don't have to starve yourself. I mean, if you find out that that doing your high intensity workout and then going to bed disrupts your sleep, and that's been the, been my case. Um, I have literally two hard boiled eggs and, and that just, just handles it. And I'm not, you know, that's all fat and protein. There's little, if any carbohydrate in an egg, I don't, I don't know if there's any, so you don't necessarily have to starve yourself after a workout, but just try to really limit your carbohydrate intake. And his third question, are there any measures I should take to continue my successful train road workouts while working on weight reduction? Anything we didn't mention guys? Yeah. Outside of what we talked about, I don't think so. Yeah, just be consistent is the basic one, and uh, don't try to you know do a crash diet where you I'm just not going to eat anything. Yes. You know, yeah, when you're talking about juice and a conservative approach, one to two pounds per week, I definitely like hearing that. That's that's sensible, and it's something that's probably going to stick because it's going to happen more because you're forming new habits rather than just crash dieting, getting instant weight loss, and then watching mm-hmm. it all return. And so, guys, or you want to say something, Jonathan? Yeah, and I was just going to back up what you said, Nate. Consistency is the most important Mm -hmm. thing if you're going for weight loss. It says the skinny guy. Listen (laughs) to Jonathan, guys. We have something right after this, but continue, Jonathan. Yeah, so do not miss on those workouts. Um, If you do, it just makes it so tough because in in most cases, what you're doing is you're, like you mentioned, you're going to be intentionally operating yourself at a caloric (laughs) deficit in many cases. So when you miss those workouts, it's, it's pretty tough and it's really easy to get down on yourself, especially because you're counting those calories. Just do not miss them. Do everything you can not to, and that will really pay off. And yeah. now we're going to get it. I think Nate well, wants let me, to let get me say one more thing. I actually thought of Go one ahead, more thing. Um, a lot yeah. of people, and I may have mentioned this already, but when, when they increase their workload, they increase their, their uh, dietary intake. They feel like I'm doing more work, so I should be able to eat oh, more. Yeah. And that's all mm-hmm. good and fine. If all you're looking to do is improve performance, well, improve uh, power output. But if you're trying to improve your strength to weight ratio, if you're trying to shed weight, then the diet doesn't correlate with the with the work you're doing. The work goes up a bit. Try to keep the diet where it is, or you know maybe even reduce it a little mm-hmm. bit. But if weight loss is the goal, don't uh, don't supplement these longer rides with with more carbohydrate. Yeah, perfect stuff. Uh, we've got good advice there. Hopefully um, for you. Uh, you want to set it up, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. So we're gonna talk about our weight now, uh, so you guys can get a dun, paint, dun, a, dun. paint a good picture of all of us for you guys. So no. Um, <laughs> we uh we we got curious about measuring body fat percentage here and the different ways we could do it and trying to find out which was more reliable which wasn't kind of went on a mythbusters kick if you will and we went through and and, and tested different methods and we're going to test these for the next jeez uh, every 2 months I'm going to go in and Forever. get it tested so you guys can keep up on us and keep us honest for for managing our weight so we tested Let's three talk different about the ways tests. yes yeah go ahead the Y'all, first you one, want me to do it? Go yeah, ahead. Go, go ahead, Nate. Yeah, you go okay, ahead. And I'm kick too it excited. Off. excited. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so we did 
basically three different ways and three different common ways. The first way we did the DEXA, which DEXA is a x-ray scan. It is the gold standard in body weight. I think the only one that's as accurate or more accurate would be when you get in uh, like uh, you get submerged in water. Yeah. But basically yeah, they've for even, science. They've even, uh, there's, there's a strong, or they've talked about the, the benefits of DEXA over, over uh, water. Yeah. That was the and water method. I, and if I could suggest something too, Nate, you said gold standard, but it's important to to recognize the fact like we hear all the time, like an athlete is four to twelve percent body fat or anything else. And generally, generally, in most cases, people are using skinfold caliper tests, which we'll get to in a bit, to determine a lot of those numbers. So it doesn't mean that we're necessarily familiar with the DEXA's readings as the scale for everything we use. Yeah, you're just hedging your your body fat percentage there. <laughs> so what DEXA is is you 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 lay down on a we all went to the same diagnostic place. You lay down in a bed and an actual x-ray machine goes over your body very slowly and it puts in two different energy levels of uh, x-ray through you. And it, it, it basically, some, some of them bounce back and some of them don't. And it can um, measure the amount of body fat <clears throat> all the way through your body. So not just skin fold, as Jonathan said, but actually fat around your organs and all that kind of stuff. So we did, we, that was the first one we did. And Jonathan said, and we'll get into a little bit more, but that one gets a little bit, uh, you get a higher body fat percentage than you would think. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also did uh, skinfold calipers. So we, we have some on Amazon that we bought and it's, the, the reason why I like these is there's a little spring in them and it, it gets the tension on your fat um, consistent because if you, if you use skinfold calipers and you really squeeze down, you can like make yourself skinnier. And the yeah. third one we did. And that one, is that one the one by creative health i think you'll find it on amazon it says creative health yeah it looks gigantic too yeah um (laughs) the third one we did was the uh tanita is that you say that Mm -hmm. yeah tanita scale which is probably a lot of you have it they have an iron man version of it too i'm not sure which model i have i think it's it's around a hundred dollars when i bought it but basically you you step on it and it's a i think it's an impedance so electricity goes through your body and based on your weight your age um, your height, and if you say that if you're an athlete or not, it changes the percentage of it. It, it puts a percentage uh, fat output. So, how do you guys want to do this? Do you want me to go through the DEXA of each one of us and then kind of relate how that goes to everything else? Yeah. Okay. So, Jonathan, did you lose us? Jonathan's working on a sound, but I think we're still here. Um, so, the DEXA first. So I did the DEXA first and I've always been a really skinny guy, right? Like extremely skinny. Someone looks at me and they say, you're a twig. I got made fun of in high school and I'm tall and that kind of stuff. So I'm 6'6", 200. Although I am bigger right now. When I went through, uh, when I race about 180, right now I'm 200. So I did it and my results, freaking crazy, (laughs) 23.7% body fat. According to the DEXA. You think that, and now everyone's just turning off the podcast, this guy is... A little bit bigger, but if, so that's what the DEXA says, right? <laughs> the calipers for me say I'm at 17%, which is probably pretty accurate because I I have, you know, I'm getting, those of you who follow the podcast, I'm just now getting back into training after a year of eating ice cream and eating French fries. And, and lots if of barbecue. you look online and you Google like male body fat percentage, I probably look at the, look like the guys who are 15, 16, 17%. So I'm 23.7. Chad, he did his with DEXA, 17.2, which is also... Chad looks like a, a men's health model. Uh, 17.2 seems very high. And then Jonathan, 12.9. Yeah. 
and and Jonathan does look. You look at the, the smaller ends, real. Yeah, thin. I don't. I don't look like an emaciated road cyclist, but I'm. I'm skinny. I'm a skinny. You're getting person. there. <laughs> <laughs> no, so no, that's not my goal. That's not my goal. So I think the coolest part is the relationship. So remember, I was twenty three point seven and seventeen on the calipers for a seven point difference between calipers and Dexa. Chad was seventeen point two for Dexa and ten percent body fat for calipers for a seven point difference. The same as me between DEXA and calipers. Jonathan was 12.9% DEXA and 7% with calipers for a six-point difference between the two. So we thought that that was really interesting is that the relation, the ratio, or the, actually it's it's the points because the ratio is, uh, is actually the farthest different for Jonathan and the closest for me. Mm-hmm. But but that was kind of cool is I, I kind of thought of it almost as like a virtual power way if you don't want to do the DEXA because it was 50 bucks mm-hmm. each, each time for us is that you could use calipers and kind of get the percentage loss. So now let's talk about the Tanita scale. And this blew our minds this morning because I, <laughs> yeah. I had the settings different uh, when we did it. And when you get on it, you can have a setting of a, a regular person or a quote athlete. Okay. So we both went through as a regular person and an athlete. So me, as a regular person, the Tanita put me at 21.8. Remember, my DEXA was 23.7. Tanita, regular person, 21.8. Those are pretty close. But as an athlete setting, it put me at 16.2, which is, you know, my calipers were 17. So uh, these numbers are probably getting a little confusing. But basically, the Tanita regular setting was extremely close to my DEXA, and the caliper setting the Tanita athlete setting was extremely close to the caliper setting. And that was the same for all of us. Yeah, it held the true with all three of us. It's yeah, it was surprising. within 1%. I think, Chad, your uh, your caliper test was 10% and your Tanita athlete was 10.6. Mm-hmm. And his DEXA was 17.2 and his Tanita regular was 18.3. So that's 1% difference there mm-hmm. and about a half percentage on the caliper side. And then, Jonathan, you were 12.9 on DEXA and the Tanita regular was 11.9. So he only had a one point difference between his DEXA and his Tanita regular and calipers 7.0 and Tanita athlete was 6.5. So (laughs) half a percentage. And you know what too, if you think about it, uh, so besides Chad, we all lowered or Jonathan and I had less percentage body fat than the calipers, but we also had our clothes on when we did this in my office this morning. Mm -hmm. And if we, were a little bit lighter so that if you want to fail, if you want to like kind of lower your body fat, drink a whole bunch of water before because that'll increase your weight mm-hmm. and you'll have a lower percentage of body fat to your overall weight. So I bet Jonathan, if we did our, if we would have, you know, taken off our jeans <laughs> and stuff, we would have lost a couple pounds Yeah, and, uh, it could have been closer to this caliper. So yeah. And what's here's, the takeaway? I guess. Yeah. So there's one part of this is I think a lot of people, and this is what we were talking about with the skin fold calipers, you can look at all this data and you can just pick whichever number makes you feel happiest if you want. <laughs> and that's I, can, tem- I cannot unsee my DEXA scan, <laughs> 23.7. And that's the temptation to do, right? And especially even like with calipers, like we, we were, I mean, when you're doing a skin fold caliper test, it's actually, it's uncomfortable. Like you should be pinching a good amount of skin and it's, and it's forceful because you want to make sure that you're getting a, a good measurement. And I think that the one thing that I've learned from this is, first of all, that it's similar to power meters in the sense that if you're measuring 
in the same way, using the same instruments it, consistently, then you should be able to compare that data. Um, but comparing it from one way to the next. So if you're the type of person that got a skin fold test and then you go to the gym and you stand on that scale that tries to tell you like a tinnita that tells you, you know, your body fat, even though we found that they core they're close in some situations, I would not necessarily compare the two. And that's one thing. Still that a half found. a percentage, right? And yeah, that well, can mess with your what's going to be really interesting is, is when we go back after two months and after four months and after six months and, and, and see if these correlations actually stand up. We might find that the tinnita was spot on right now, but it, as our, as our body yeah. composition has changed, the tinnita doesn't do a good job as, as at keeping up with those changes. So so I think what what lays ahead or lies ahead is going to be more interesting than anything we've figured out so far. And the, the cool other, part about the DEXA right. is that it actually gives you a breakdown of your 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 fat your um, your fat mass, your tissue, so that all the fat that's uh, like all soft tissue, everything else like that. It gives you lean tissue weight as well or mass. It gives you it tells you how much your bones weigh, the whole deal. So you can separate all of those things and yeah, see. A- so. It's a highly detailed report. So if you're a number cruncher or just a, a data geek and you want to really see how your body breaks down, what your composition is in all aspects of it, then a DEXA scan is the way to go. And what, what we did is we just called a medical imaging center in town and you didn't need a doctor's order. It was it was 50 bucks a time for us. And insurance doesn't didn't cover it in our, in our yeah. cases. Yeah, and if you're concerned with the, the radiation dosage, uh, I was reading and it says uh, like a two-hour southwest flight actually has more radiation than a single DEXA scan. So, so okay. I was actually worried about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really low energy. And and one thing, so what I want to see later on and the goal, um, because at this point I'll, I'll be losing weight as the year progresses. I'm getting a later start than what most cyclists do with my training this year, but my goal is to see a decrease in overall weight, but more than anything, a decrease in fat mass. And I want to see an increase, or at the very least, I need to see the same amount of lean muscle mass, right? I need to see, I, I don't want to see that in go your down. legs, in my legs. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and yeah, that, beach season's coming, so I can't have that off the upper body. So <laughs> my, my saving grace is I have more lean muscle mass than both you guys. I am four inches taller than Chad, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> but I just, at least I have that. How tall uh, are you, Nate? 6'6". Six, six. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let's go over your guys' heights and weight. So I'm 6'6", six, six, 200. Mm-hmm. I am uh, 5'11", and 150. And I'm 6'2", 181. Yeah. Yeah. So for me to get down to Chad's amount of body, f- no, percentage body fat, I would have to lose, based on my, my results, my DEXA results, 10 pounds of body fat. Which is insane. Like for you to so another thing that people don't know is if you go from like 200 to 190, it's highly unlikely that 100% of that's going to be body fat. Mm-hmm. Usually, when you lose weight, it's part body fat, part muscle. Bodybuilders, I mean, they're on drugs too, but you can do it if you're extremely good. But especially if you're a cyclist, it's probably not going to happen. So it'll be. Oh, the other thing everyone knows because this is this is we're. If you work at Trainer Road, it's you're highly likely to develop a complex because you're around <laughs> all these people. Jonathan Lean and Chad aren't even athletes. our strongest in, employees or our skinniest employees. No, nope. we have two other guys that are skinnier. Yep, uh, and faster in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's you just walk around and everyone's like eating salads and working out, and <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> but uh, this will be a competition between us, and just so I can kind of uh, have a handicap. Next week, I go on vacation for my birthday, and I'm going to an all-inclusive resort for a week. So that means unlimited alcohol, unlimited food, 
But then after that, the diet starts. <laughs> then it's on. It, <laughs> yeah, some, then it's on. Something else that's cool about the decks are just like little things that you can grab. Like it will tell you how much weight you're carrying around your, or how much fat you carry around, around your waist and the percentage, I should say, versus how much you carry around um, your hips versus how much you carry all throughout your body. It will tell you how much your bones weigh. In my case, it's like I have like 6.4 pounds of bones in my body. And uh, it'll tell you how much fat you have. And this is not just subcutaneous stuff, but this is visceral. This is everything else. So this is fat that we don't see just from the skin. Uh, so this is more fat that it scans, right? And How much do your bones weigh? That sounds like not much. I think it was six pounds when I broke it, broke it down. I have like 18 pounds of body fat, I think, in my body. Hmm. So, or of, of, of fat, I should say, in my body. Interesting. So, yeah. Man, I have so much more than you. It's a, yeah, your bone mass is probably. A I have a uh, no, my fat, my fat. I have twenty point six kilograms, so that's uh, times two point two for. So, but that's what, that's 44. DEXA scan too. So you got to keep in mind that's not just that you know subcutaneous is the fat we all want to ditch, right? That's the stuff we're just packing around. It's not doing us much good. Mm-hmm. But we've also got um, intramuscular fat, uh, visceral fat. Uh, even, I think Dexa even gets the yellow marrow in your bones. And then of course, you know, breasts on, on women more than guys, but it's every bit of fat that's on your body. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a great way to expose yourself entirely, both literally and, and figuratively and make yourself feel a little (laughs) self-conscious, but it's also a great way to keep yourself honest if you're that type of person too. Um, so we're going to be, it's it's fat shaming. Let's just call it what it is. (laughs) I'm going to come back in at like 165 next time. (laughs) (laughs) Look like a schleck. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we'll do, we'll do our, uh, we'll, we'll follow up with this and it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, let's go on to Sue's question. She says, uh, firstly, super props on your most excellent podcast. I don't know if I've ever gotten super props before. I'll take it. Um, uh, I listen to you way down here in New Zealand, and you guys get me so pumped up to ride bikes. It's ace. Big thanks. I'm a road cyclist, and I've been training. We just gave everyone a complex, too, about their weight. I know. Hopefully, <laughs> right. we didn't give you, uh, goal. encourage you to do other things. So, um, I'm a road cyclist. You two gave me a complex, just so you know. <laughs> I'm a road cyclist, and I've been training with Power Outdoors on my road bike for the past three months now, following a structured periodized training plan, and I would like some advice on how I can maintain and improve my power on the flats. This, I think of you, Chad, when I think of this. Um, what I mean by this is I'm currently training at 230 watts for an FTP, and a couple weeks back, I raced a rolling, hilly, 110-kilometer course in three hours and 17 minutes at a normalized power of 216 watts and an average um, of 95 RPM across the entire duration of this race. And I've just completed some power endurance hill intervals, four by seven minutes on a hill, and I maintained 266 watts at an average of 70 to 75 RPM across all four intervals, and I still had more in the bag. This seems to suggest that my FTP needs to be retested and is more likely around the 240 or 250 mark. However, when I ride tempo or sweet spot or threshold sessions on flat road, I find it really difficult to maintain even the lower end of these power zones across the intervals. Do you have any suggestions on what I can do on the flat to maintain and improve on the power I know I have? Is this a bike or body position thing? And when I'm going uphill, something comes into alignment and I can recruit more optimal muscles? Or could it be a focus thing? Is this just something that takes time to develop? Or do I just have some crazy DNA markers? Uh, boy, that's, that's a lot to contemplate. Uh, it, it could be any one of those things. Um, it, whether or not your threshold has come up is neither here nor there. You're having trouble with uh, just sustaining a, re- a reasonably high percentage of threshold for long periods of time. So you're good at the 
the stuff that's above threshold, you can hang on to that for, you know, in this case, seven minutes. No problem. You can go out and ride three hours at a really, you know, high percentage of what might be your FTP, might be a little off the mark, but, but close anyway. So, uh, my recommendation for you is to start working on stuff that emphasizes muscle endurance. And that's, uh, it's more sweet spot. I mean, you basically have to do what you're not really great at right now. I mean, there are other ways to <clears throat> to lift your power profile or lift your your aptitudes, but uh, if I had to boil it down to one simple recommendation, I would say um, target workouts like over unders. <clears throat> Excuse me. Those are my least favorite workouts. Period. I I, I absolutely despise them because they're so demanding, <laughs> but they are the most effective, especially yeah. when it comes to muscle endurance and being able to gut Quit. out long durations at high power outputs. Quit putting them in plans, then, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I hate them. Too. Oh, they work so well, though. There, and here's the thing to think of: um, even on a flat road. Uh, changes in road surface, slight gusts of wind, just anything comes along. And, and that does put you, if you're riding right at your threshold, it's mm-hmm. going to put you over. And then that gust of wind is going to turn favorable or it's it just turns like downhill. It's r- like riding a pace line, same deal. When your turn's in mm-hmm. front, you're working a little above threshold. Then you settle back in and you're working a little below threshold, but you're never really that far from it if you guys are you know moving at a good clip. Mm-hmm. So if you are a trainer road user, I say uh, sustained power build. Because pretty mm-hmm. much what that is, is a... Uh, kind of a vo2 max workout one day and then a over under one day and then a longer sweet spot endurance interval do you yep. agree chad that would be what you're yeah i do I, I see those in each in their own way anything below threshold i see it as raising your fitness from below anything above threshold as in lifting it up from above and then anything right at it is just increasing the duration that you can sustain it you know, one thing I would say too is, and I don't know, Sue, if you're on an electronic trainer, if you are, uh, train in a higher gear, that tends to be helpful. Um, if you're training in a lower gear, sometimes that can be tough. I know last year I did a lot of my training in a higher gear. So spinning quickly, big chain ring type of stuff and on the small cog on the cassette. And last year at all the mountain bike races, I looked like a roadie. If you looked at my performance, cause I was really strong on the flats for myself personally. Um, that made me, that allowed me to win some crits and road races too. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, I guess going in, in the same vein with what Chad's saying to get faster at a specific type of riding train that specific way. And those adaptations will come and and not just with the inner type of intervals you're doing, but in the environment as well. Uh, make sure that you're doing that. Uh, it'll really help. And as far as positioning goes, uh, it takes time to work yourself into a position or to become comfortable and efficient as efficient in that position as you may be in another, um, bike fit comes into play there. There are a lot of things, um, but that certainly could have an effect, right, Chad? Oh, for, for sure. And then you talk about going up hills and, and you can sustain high power at a low, low power output, or I'm sorry, a low RPM. Um, there's like a, a mechanical efficiency thing that comes into play there. Um, there's the fact that the resistance is so steady, whereas on the flats, it might waver a bit. But the fact that you've got the strength, the leg strength to push high watts for you know seven minutes at a time totally weighs in your favor. So I think when you start hitting the over-under stuff, you're, you're going to see the the results you're looking for. Two, congrats, Sue. I just did a little, like, if your FTP is 250 uh, and you put your weight in there, but you're like four watts kilo. <laughs> strong. That's, for a woman, Very nice. for, for a woman, that's like, and for a guy, that's super strong. For a yes. woman, that's outstanding. Yeah. Yes. Impressive. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, really good. And Sue says, thanks for all your advice and banter. I feel like I am on, uh, or if I feel like I am to the TR podca- podcast, like CrossFitters are to CrossFit. <laughs> that's that's saying, that's dedication right there, right? Uh, can't get enough of your Kool-Aid. 
Awesome. We uh, have trainer road podcast tattoos. If anyone scared, <laughs> <laughs> no, just uh, don't do that. After we got our DEXA scans, we all went together and got them. Um, Adam says, hi, I'm on week three of Sweet Spot Base 2, and I'm loving the whole structured training ethos. I'm totally sold on Trainer Road, and I'm seeing my fitness improve. Awesome. Cool. Good stuff. My question is about pedal technique, and particularly the idea of pulling on the upstroke, i.e. from 7 to 11 o'clock. There seems to be a clash of ideas when it comes to the idea of pulling up, with many online sources actually saying it's a bad thing as it detracts from the opposing leg um, being able to apply maximum force on its downstroke. This would therefore seem to be counterproductive to pull on the upstroke, which you seem to ask us to do in the quadrant drills. So what are your thoughts on this upstroke phase, as I want to maximize my entire evolution of each pedal stroke to gain those few extra free watts? Yeah, Adam, for the most part, I'm in agreement with the detractors, the people who say the, the obvious pull is is not optimal. Um, for, for one reason that, yeah, it does uh, kind of fly in the face of what your other leg's trying to do but also because they're just not very strong muscles. You're not gonna derive that much more power from actively pulling through the top of the pedal stroke. So when I recommend those in the pedal stroke drills, my intent is simply to make the, the pedal stroke itself more fluid and, and simply to make you more conscious of, of the other less obvious quadrants of the pedal stroke. So I'm not looking for you to pull up exactly. And, and oftentimes in the screen text, I'll say, I'll mention this is a very light maneuver. You don't even have to pull so much as unweight. Just make sure you're not working against that opposing leg. but <clears throat> there is, um, I mean, there is a particular aspect to each of those four quadrants. And if you can get you thinking about it and get those, those, those communication lines, those neuromuscular communication lines open, then this becomes a subconscious thing. And you don't, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not looking for more power. I'm not looking for you to, to drive the pedal stroke with your upstroke. I'm just looking for you to make, make each revolution of each leg a little more active, a little more complete, more supple, fluid, less wasteful. Yeah, so kind of as you go through them, it's kind of like uh, like jumping with ankle weights. Like if you do it during, a, you do a drill and you do it and then you ride, you know, five more hours where you don't even think about it. Well, maybe we've improved it just a, a little mm-hmm. bit so that you're not wasteful, like Chad said. But we're, we don't advocate like a, if 100% would be, I'm, I'm you know, the, the output's going to be the same all the way through my pedal stroke all the time. Like We don't advocate that. It's just we don't. You've seen people too, and we've talked about before, just totally mash, or you could be trying to apply force and not the direction. That's This is pretty much the biggest thing. You're trying to apply force and not the direction that the pedals are going. And it's a circular thing the whole time, right? So it has to change, and your, your muscles have to learn how to do that because that's not a innate ability. Yeah, what... Um, uh... <clears throat> friend of ours that here at trainer road and a friend of mine, Brian Gordon, he's a body geometry fit specialist for specialized and he's a product engineer. In fact, he was actually on our latest blog post. We talked to him about how bike fit or bike geometry affects your power output. Um, but we talked to him and in our conversation, he said that he has seen countless he does hundreds of fits a year. And he said that he's, he's never seen a single person be able to effectively pull and not push with the other foot at the same time. It's just our body. It's really tough to do that. Um, but think of it like, think of it like a ballet dancer. You've never gone to a ballet to go watch ballet dancers dance on the bar, right? To hold on to that bar and do the exercises that they do. But they're doing that because in, in an environment in which they can train and hone and perfect their technique. So then later on, hopefully it becomes second nature. Um, that's That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, James. Hi guys. I absolutely love the podcast and trainer road. They're both fantastic. My question is about post-race recovery. 
I'm currently in training for my Ironman UK and I'm racing a couple of sprint and Olympic distance distance duathlons in the next two months and some 10 K run races too. What do you recommend the day after the sprint and Olympic distance duathlons for training and recovery? And when can I get back to the full distance triathlon plan schedule and start hitting the intervals again without compromising my training? Great work guys. I can't wait for the release of the podcast and keep checking iTunes daily for it. Um, I'll, I'll start with this one, Chad, just, I've, I've heard this a lot and a lot of people get benefit from this is after a hard race like that. Um, especially if it's a shorter one, like a sprint Olympic, they do a swim kind of an easy, easier swim. Um, not too much. They tend to feel better. And then the next day they just get right back into training as normal for their Ironman. Uh, what do you, what do you think, Chad? Yeah. I like, um, I, I almost always advocate after a race weekend doing a recovery ride. Um, there, there's, a, there's a tissue, uh, suppleness or pliability that comes with it. Um, there's just all, all the things that time off the bike. I mean, that the rigidity that creeps in the, I, I, I just have, I've always wanted to get on or haven't ever wanted to, but I always make myself get on the bike the day after a race. And, and in the times that I don't, the subsequent two or three days suffer because of it. So if for no other reason than my personal experience, I like to get on the bike for an easy 30 minute spin a triathlete that could just as easily be done in the pool. Um, definitely do not advocate running. Um, if you're a runner though, and, and you're accustomed to the, to the, to the high mileage, uh, I don't know, maybe you could do a 20 minute run afterwards. I, I'm not sure that'd be the greatest idea, especially if you're carrying a lot of fatigue or uh, muscle injury, you know, soreness. Yeah. Pedal, uh, a quick pedal certainly would be less impactful on your body, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and the last, and then, and as far as getting back into your full distance triathlon plan, that's kind of up to you. It it all depends on your recoverability, how hard the event was on to you, was, was on your body, how much training you did leading up to it. Um, how, how actively or or, or harshly you pursued, uh, any race outcome. So, so it, it, it just depends on when you feel like you can get back to training and then you hop on the bike and see how the first couple of workouts go. You'll, you'll know whether or not you're ready to start training again. If you can't you're, keep the quality high, it's probably best that you take another day either off the bike or preferably easy. Uh, your age too, right? So if James mm-hmm. is, uh, 19, mm-hmm. he might be able to do a swim and just, you know, get right back yeah, into it. Absolutely. But if James is uh 55, it's probably, you know, it could be a couple days before he gets yeah, in. There are a lot of factors that reco- that affect recoverability. So we just, uh, again, it, it comes down to experience and paying attention to what's going on. All right. So that does it for this week's uh, episode. We'll have some more questions answered next week. Remember, uh, you can find this on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else where you find your podcasts and leave us a review on there and submit your questions to us, support at trainerroad.com. We will comb through and and grab as many as we can and and answer them for you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.